This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Life's journey is always a winding road. Occasionally, though, something happens that you can't ignore. For Cardozi Jones, that event happened when he was suddenly faced with the reality of losing his vision. A small blip that went ignored turned out to be a torn retina that led to vision loss. It also sparked his curiosity to seek what he truly valued in his life. From traveling to Paris to write a musical, to starting his consulting firm, True North EDI, that advances equity, diversity, and interdependence, you'll hear how Cardozi took the leap and what it takes to bring these values to communities and companies in a way that creates real change. Welcome to the All Possibilities podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being Possibilities. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all Cardozi, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me, Julie. So I was introduced to you because... I heard you had an interesting story <laughs> and and that you've made a really wonderful life for yourself. And I'm always curious to hear these stories of transformation, um, kind of going through whatever challenges you went through to get to where you are now, because it's just, to me, it's a testament to what the human spirit can accomplish. And so let's start off by having you share with us what shapes you or what shaped you into who you are today let's let's go back to the very beginning <laughs> that's a good question um I, I appreciate what you said about my life being wonderful because i think that's something that i wouldn't have said um it just feels too grand and i think that speaks to how small i was living um i think maybe before eight years ago. Um, I had a good life, but I would never say wonderful. Um, and so now that I have a life, you know, full of real world problems and, you know, real life stuff, it's still, I still feel comfortable saying it's, it's wonderful. And it is. Um, I think what shapes me is my desire to go against what I feel are a lot of societal norms about what you're supposed to do specifically. I think I've learned to really rebel against the idea of a nine to five. Um, and my parents, you know, pretty much had one their whole life. Uh, uh, my father still works um, more flexible now. He's a, he's a federal judge. Um, so he makes his own nice. schedule. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <clears throat> but I, I think that, you know, growing up, I, um, saw that you were supposed to have a nine to five and I became an educator. Uh, I worked as a theater teacher at a high school. Um, and after about eight years at that high school, I, I resigned when I was assistant principal and I resigned because I was sitting in my office one day, uh, looking out the window and I love, I love my job. Um, I was there for 16 hours a day, but I loved my job. Um, 
I was looking out the window and I noticed a small dot in the sky on the horizon. And I, it was Wednesday and I ignored it. And Thursday, I was looking out the same window at my desk and I saw the dot has now a little, um, little shadow. And I, so I thought, okay, this is not the sky. This is my eye. And I thought that I have a sty or something it was like a, you know, a, a bump on my eye. So I ignored it again. Friday, the third day, I, the, the shadow was not bigger. Um, my sister is an ophthalmologist and wow. I called her immediately. That's really lucky. Uh, yeah, <laughs> actually, it's, it was quite the blessing. Um, I'm sure I, I, I informed her path in life uh, to some extent, but I called her and she said, you need to go to the the ER immediately. Um, I'm worried that your retina may have detached. And so mind you, my when I was 11 years old, the doctor told me and my parents that I had a, a, a thin, there was like a thinning in my retina and I was at risk for a detachment. So I couldn't play sports, which was fine by me because I'm a theater guy. <laughs> um, not that they both can't coexist. But I, so I always knew it was a possibility. But you know how you live in bubbles and you just think, People say life is short all the time, right? So you go kind of with that esoteric, you know, directive in life. It doesn't really mean anything. What you don't always recognize is that life can be long, but your your senses, right, and your abilities aren't always um, – don't always remain the way they, they were. So I went to the ER. They confirmed that my retina had torn um, and I had to be in surgery the next morning. So uh, my parents came from Philadelphia. My sister came from Maryland um, that night or by the next morning. And how old were you uh, at this time? So I'm 35 now. Um, so this must have happened when I was 28. Wow. 28. So I was uh, seven years ago. Um, and I, I went to surgery. My first time in my life ever having surgery. And I came out of surgery and I... My eyesight was was gray. It was gray. So where I, where I had vision before, now it was gray. Uh, and my eyes have never been good. Even the eye the eye that that was gray or that where the retina detached was um, was never a good eye. It was my worst eye. But <clears throat> now it was gray. So over the next six months, I had another surgery. To um, this is part two of a two part surgery. And over the course of the six months, my doctor. Or the doctor that I ended up with kept saying, "All right, is you know, can you see now? How is it today?" And you know, they would they would shine light in my eyes, and I could see light, but that was about it. Um, and then it was kind of getting more gray. And finally, I ended up with another doctor somehow. I think by accident, my doctor was out, and I asked her, "So when do you think my vision will come back?" And she said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, the doctor said we'll be like, you know, keeping an eye on it. No pun intended." And <laughs> she said. I don't know who told you that, but that's not, that's not going to happen. Your your vision, your your nerves are irreparably damaged, mm. um, and that we don't we don't even have the science to bring your vision back, not yet. Um, so at this point, you can either your options are to get another surgery, the third surgery, to keep your vision the way it is, which was just gray, <laughs> dark gray at this point, which was giving me a headache every in, day in one eye, in one eye, which and I had a headache that? every day in my right eye, um, my right, or let it go and it will eventually just fade completely. And so that was drastic for me because even though this had all happened, I had been left with some sliver of hope that my sight would return. Um, 
and I found I discovered that I was somewhat misleading or I was misinformed or miscommunication. Um, and then so my, my eyesight faded. And that year, uh, as I said, I was assistant principal and I I was already thinking I would leave the school soon. Um, but it was scary. It had been my only job since I was out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I made my money. This is where I was getting promoted. This is where I was kind of a beloved member of the community, a leader. Um, but I... At that point, I sat at my desk on the other side of all this. And I thought, I cannot sit here all day long with my one eye. <laughs> I have one eye left, and I don't think that I can I can waste it um, by not doing exactly what I want to be doing, which I discovered was traveling and writing and producing theater and um, finding meaningful relationships um, and just doing new things that I, I'd been scared to do. I'm tearing up. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Because you just described my life. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for people who have listened to the show, they know that I have visual impairments, mm-hmm. again, with retina. Um, retinal hemorrhages and I don't know whether to just keep talking while crying or just pause but but I, I also lived in that world where the doctors say you know there's nothing once your vision is gone it's gone right and, and everyone keeps saying what about this kind of surgery? What about that kind of surgery? And I'm like, sure, for someone, but not not for me. It doesn't work for right. what happened to me. Right. Right. So I find it just so courageous that you said, you know what? I'm going, like, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to go out and do it. So bring us to that moment. What What was that like and what did you what was the conversation that you had in your mind? Like, was it just immediate that that you decided, I have one eye, I'm not going to waste it? Or or were there kind of like two voices in your head battling back and forth? Well, there was three. There was two were my parents. <laughs> <laughs> and one was... One was what I thought must be possible. It must be possible... For me to make a living and feel free and do the things that I want to do specifically as it relates to being an entrepreneur and an artist and an educator. Um, And I felt – and there were another 250 voices in my head and those were the students – that I was responsible for. Um, as a teacher, when you're with a community for a very long time, there is a tremendous amount of guilt when, if and when you decide to leave. And this, because I had been part of this community since I, uh, since I was 21, maybe. I think I may have turned 21 my first year as like an intern at the school. And, and what community, like where? It was where uh, Williamsburg, Bushwick, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, kind of both areas. Um, and it was a really wonderful community. And 
what was powerful about it was that the part I skipped um, in terms of what shaped me is that I moved to New York to attend New York University's musical theater program. And I got there and uh, my first day of school was 9-11, mm-hmm. first day of classes. The day I moved into dorms, which is two weeks earlier, the singer Aliyah had passed away. Um, and that was pretty traumatic because I loved Aliyah. Um, I love music and R&B. Mm-hmm. And I, upon coming to NYU, which was, mind you, my only choice for college, I, I pretty much demanded like a brat that I would not apply anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> so I applied to NYU early. I got in. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good friend of mine had been there in the same program the year before me. So I just knew, you know, New York City, you know how the story goes about New York City. Um, when I arrived, just being at the school in my in my cohort, which was about 78 people, um, I was probably the only brown person there. And I'm from Philadelphia and Philadelphia, the arts scene in Philadelphia, from my experience, um, is very is very black centered. Uh, there's like black artistic expression is a, is a huge part of the Philadelphia arts community and arts scene. And so my experience and my body for much of my life as an artist was centered, um, which is not reflective of the world. And this is what I've learned through that experience. And, you know, as I do my work now, uh, which we can talk about, but um, after leaving NYU after that first year, now cursing my parents for making me go here. <laughs> um, I left and I went to Hunter College where I um, discovered a major in media studies, which was really, for me, uh, I discovered a class called Race and Representation, Representations of Race and Gender in the Media. And so much of what I had felt that was broken in me my first year of college was now I was realizing that the system is broken, mm. that the system that created that space where I was the only brown body amongst, you know, almost a hundred people, which is crazy in New York Mm -hmm. city or anywhere for that matter. Um, specifically New York city is it was the system. There were systems in place that, you know, economic systems, uh, systems around theater itself, you know, all these things that create very, uh, what I learned were, you know, white centered spaces and, so the community that I discovered um, when I ended up at the school as a teacher was this community. I'm half black, half Puerto Rican. My mom's Puerto Rican. My dad's African-American. Um, was this, you know, black and brown, beautiful community that I hadn't had. Um, and I was only 21. And my, my youngest, my students were, it's a new school, new high school. So they were 14, mm-hmm. right? So I was... Um, seven years older, maybe six when I started years older than, than these students. In a lot of ways, I felt like I was like a big brother to them. Mm. Um, and they were my siblings and, and the teachers were young and my friends. And it was just a really big family. And I hadn't had that. And I was really worried that I, I could never have that in New York City. So when I did leave the school, I was leaving my family. Mm. I was leaving my family after, after eight years. Uh, and I was part of, you know, the voice that was in my mind, the voices Coming up, you'll hear about Cardozi's trips to Paris and his vision for True North.
Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Welcome to Hashtag Moms Got This. Get your mom life fix four days a week. I'm Michelle Parr. And I'm Stacey Eagle. Together, we chatted up with a new boss mom each week about her journey and why she's got this. Make sure to subscribe and show us some love on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever the best podcasts are found. And remember, Mom's Got This. So you wanted to travel to theater and find meaningful experiences. What did you end up doing? What was that journey like? And how was your vision as you were going through this? It's so funny because so much of the story is about my vision and so much of the story is about vision, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a vision that was still forming every day that was driving me to move forward. Uh, But I, it was so informed (laughs) as my eye vision was getting worse. uh, The vision I had for my life was getting more clear, but it was still pretty um, uh, opaque, you know? Um, And so in the year after I left the school, you know, I tried. I tried to go to one more school when I just to see. My my nerves kicked in. Like, no, I'm making a huge mistake. Let me just get a school job really quickly. And I I literally quit that job after two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, okay, that was a good test. I'm done. I tried it. This is I'm done with this. So um, I started doing teaching artist work. Um, a friend of mine, he who actually brought me to the, the high school eight years earlier. He was now working for a teaching artist uh, organization, which is just, you know, artists who go into schools or recreation centers and, you know, do performing and creative arts with young people. Um, So I started doing that. But this was in the direction of me really um, being able to create my schedule, being able to say yes or no to work. And I was beginning to have a life that was just more flexible and more free. Uh, and I loved it. I loved it. And so this same friend, who's my best friend, his name is Joe, he, um, him and I had started writing a musical in 2008. And this was about three years before I left the school. And our musical uh, was called, is called Madame Infamy. And um at the time, randomly, it was about it was like paralleling the stories of Marie Antoinette, last queen of France, and Sally Hemings, who um, was a slave of Thomas Jefferson and um, a mother to about six of his kids, and who had you know, about a forty-year relationship with him, and kind of seen as a master negotiator of her time um, and negotiated freedom for her children. And so, this story that I. Growing up in high school, I always joke, now I do education consulting, I talk about how I could have cared less about history, especially the French Revolution, um, in high school when we learned about it. <laughs> and I just think, I think if educators could just understand the power of story and telling stories and the history and just all of, so much of what we get um, 
what they want us to get, what educators want us to get as students, really can just come in the form of story. And if you add art into that, it's even better. Mm-hmm. So we've written this musical, and we it was just a workshop. It was a, we got some students together to to produce it, and we did it in about a month. And we decided that we really wanted to try to you know, push this further. So we wanted to go back to it, open laptop again, start writing again. Um, we want to dig in a little bit deeper. So he recommended that if we really want to do this, we just take time this summer, I think it was 2011 or 12, and just go to Paris. Now, mind you, I'd never, I've been to Europe in high school. Um, but, you know, it's so funny because it's just we, Europe, it, travel period can can feel, depending on how we frame our lives, can feel so, well, I have to save for that. And I can't, there's no way I could possibly do that this year. And and, he, and at this point, Airbnb was brand new. I had my own apartment. He had his own apartment. And we just said, listen, we will just run out of our apartments, like into oblivion <laughs> and save up the money and, and go to Paris. And we went to, him and I went to Paris. We, we booked a one-way ticket. Wow. This was the beginning of like my, my riskiness, you know, part of the beginning. We booked a one-way ticket to force ourselves to go. We said, we'll figure it out, um, you know, over the next few months, how we'll get back. And we booked this ticket, and we rented our apartments out via Airbnb. I slept on his couch. She slept on my couch. <laughs> um, and we went to Paris that summer for about a month, and we just wrote, wrote this, uh, developed the script, wrote new songs, and, you know, as he would say, walked through the footsteps of our characters. Mm. Um, and leading up to that trip, we'd gone, we'd visited um, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, where Monticello, Jefferson's plantation is, mm. uh, to do that research as well. And one thing that I'll never forget is that on both trips, the first trip to Monticello and our trip to Paris and specifically um, Versailles, we met these two women, and our story is about two women. And we met these two women who, in Monticello, was a tour guide, and in at Versailles, was a doctoral student writing a, randomly writing about Marie Antoinette as her like thesis dissertation. And these two women brought so much life to our story, and I, I'll never, <laughs> I'll never not think of them as angels. And we, we to this day we call them our angels who really breathed life into the story of ours. So that year was really, um, that was the year of travel for me, where I really got to just go away. And 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 in Paris was a, a checkpoint for me because so I, I spent so many days sitting by the river and just writing or sitting and, you know, sipping coffee, like that that life, you know, outdoors and watching people walk by. And I remember thinking to myself, how do I get this in New York City? How do I get this life right here in Paris that's supposed to be a vacation? How do I make it not a vacation and make it just what my life is? Mm-hmm. And that's what I've been working for, <laughs> toward for the last, um, you know, six years or so. And the, so the following year, we submitted our musical to the New York Musical Theater Festival. And about, I think in April 2014, we got a letter saying we've been accepted. Wow. And this was a big deal for us, the first time it would be produced. And they said that we had to raise, we did all the numbers, um, and you you pretty much fundraise for yourself if you're part of this festival. It's just a platform. 
we did the numbers and we were accepted in April and our show would go up in July, the late July slot, and we had to raise $50,000 in three months. So I said, absolutely not. <laughs> this is, first of all, this was like a Ponzi scheme. I was like, July and, of that year? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we did our research and we realized this is just, producing theater is expensive in New York City. Um, and whether or not we want to do this or not, it's, it's just an expensive endeavor. Mm-hmm. And Joe, who is, who, you know, even before I was, a, I consider myself a risk taker, Joe really always pushed me to take risks. And he said, I would love to do this. And I think that we can do this. And I said, all right, cool, let's do it. And we raised $55,000 in three months wow. via social media uh, wow. a, um, fundraising campaign. And that's amazing. It was, yeah, three of us, there's three co writers. Uh, Myself, Joe Vigliotti, and Sean Willis. And together, we, we pulled this money together and had about a week-long run of our show. Um, and it was it was fantastic. And and it had really it was really a capstone to a lot of work and passion that had gone into it up to that point. Um, and so we're still we're still trying to push that musical and and you know have it be seen as often as possible and, and to further develop it. But um, that was kind of the artistic one of, you know, the artistic apexes of the last, you know, five, five, six years. So that was great. So that's, that was that was part of the travel and part of the writing and the art and just a huge, you know, chunk of what the last few years' journey has been. What is True North then? So, so True North is, um, is a consulting firm that I founded – because full circle, I started at NYU and felt so alone. I felt so broken. And then I discovered this world, the matrix, right? I, t- I took one of the pills and I realized <laughs> I was living in a matrix where all of the medias I was receiving, all the images I was receiving and all the media I was receiving and all the narrative I was, was, was receiving was anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-women, mm-hmm. anti non-heterosexual cisgender right transphobic and there was this world that was that was at the center of it was this powerful thing and then everything else in proximity to that thing was um there was a possibility for that thing to be oppressed right your body your values your religion and so in my work in education um i while I was a teacher, I got my master's in applied theater. Applied theater is pretty much just, you know, theater used to facilitate, you know, justice-oriented conversations, education mm-hmm. conversations. And I took that um, degree, and it, what, it, what it really did for me was allow me to access a facilitator in myself um, that had the ability to really engage people in thinking about complex ideas Um in different ways and meaningful ways. So I work as a consultant. I, I um, go into schools and nonprofits and foundations and corporations to try to help them, to support them in their hopeful commitment to, you know, um, equity, equity oriented conversations, diversity, inclusion, interdependence. Um, in the sphere, inclusion is the language for me. 
interdependence is more about us working together and us relying on each other and not one person including another. So I have recently um, really dived in to to that work as a consultant and and bringing other people on board to support that. And I'm just trying to really make change, um, meaningful change, and not not a lot of the superficial change that we see. And specifically in education, where I know that I think I, I was let down. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had great teachers often, and sometimes I had terrible teachers. But overall, what I do know is that I couldn't tell you the definition of race before I got to college, or probably before I was 25. And so specifically around racial equity work, how can we have a conversation about a thing that we have not been taught what it is? So all the the way that we interact with it is based on our values and our social norms that we establish and, and histories of oppression and power. But because we can't name the thing, you know, we are overall disempowered um, and not, not, we are not empowered to have meaningful conversations about that thing, about race and about equity. And so I'm really passionate about whether it's arts or education. It, 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 it's with me everywhere I go. And I think that's the thing I realized. I realized that this idea of equity and um, inclusion and interdependence found itself in all of what I did and all of who I was, be it at home with my family, having conversations, be it me writing a musical, me as a teacher, me on interviews. It was it, I took it with me everywhere I went. So mm-hmm. now it's a little more of a fully formed thing that I get to put out into the world. As you're doing this new work, what's going on in the back of your mind about your vision? Are you afraid that your other eye might be affected or have you just shifted focus so that it's not even on your mind anymore what's going on there so um four months ago i got married so i went back to paris and i got married in paris um to my husband dewey and dewey has added two more eyes to my life and so i don't i don't think about it very often anymore. Um, and I think a lot of it is because of, now I'm getting teary. Um, it's because I have this other person who I know will walk with me when I need it. And, you know, he knew about my eyesight and and quite frankly, my, my good eye is not that good, right? The one eye I have left is not that good. So the, the ability to be so giving and to tell me no matter what happens, I'm here and I know things can happen. They already have uh, in terms of your vision. Um, I feel so safe. I feel so safe. So one of the really wonderful things about partnership in that way is that the things that really can weigh you down are just not so heavy because someone else has, has declared that they will carry that with you. And and of course, there are days where I'm, I, I'm like, you can't understand. You don't understand, you know, <laughs> especially cause he's white. And I'm, you know, I do this work as a, as a black man. And, um, so there's a lot of our life together that is filled with complications, with, which is not unheard of in relationships and marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this, this part of my life, the part of my, uh, that is my vision or my, or my lack of vision, um, he is such an anchor. And I, I don't know that... I am not, I'm no longer fearful 
of what might happen because I know that I have today and today Dewey is here and whether or not my vision is here tomorrow, Dewey will be here tomorrow. I, tr- I truly believe that and, and I trust him and I love him. So that's part of what goes hand in hand with my, my thoughts around my vision is that I have, I have vision. I have vision in for my future and I have two wives over there <laughs> who will, who will really take care of me when I need it. Wow. Oh, more tears. <laughs> more tears. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm really happy for you. Thank you. And Thank I can you. understand that because that's, that's the role my husband plays. Mm-hmm. He'll read menus to me when I can't see it. Yeah. And like, you know, those, when you go into a restaurant, these, they have menus kind of lit up and they're up by the ceiling. Yes. Uh, he'll, he'll whisper. He'll be like, it says it's a cheeseburger. It has bacon. It has caramelized onions and mushrooms. I know you like, you should choose that one. I was like, well, what's the one below it? And so he'll read the menu exactly. to me. I mean, it's, there's a lot of stuff that we take for granted. We do. We do. And these so, so so many of these big decisions that we make are on the precipice of what can be really scary. Life changes. Um, and, you know, when I talk about my life and my vision and my work and just my, my, my spirit of a risk taker, I just tell people, like, don't wait till something happens to your eye. Don't wait till something happens to your ability to walk, you know, um, or some some ability you have is just taken away from you. Like, don't wait for that thing to be the the spark that makes you live and be more alive. Don't wait. For, like, take my word for it. I could have done it far earlier than I did. I'm, I have no regrets at all. But there was just no need. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. That shouldn't be the thing that makes us feel alive. A loss. Right, um, and I understand why that why it is, and it's it's very human. But if that's if there's any knowledge I can share with people, it's just you don't need to wait for something to be taken from you before you take action in your life and be the author of it. Coming up, you'll hear more about True North and its mission, and the practices you can put in place to create a better future. Are you interested in getting your own intuitive reading? Are you wondering how you can align more with your purpose? I offer introductory sessions to my Discover Your Purpose readings and coaching. As part of the All Possibilities community, you get 10% off the intro session. You get a one-on-one phone call with me where I'll do an assessment of your life and give you an intuitive reading on the highest guidance for you at this time. You'll get actionable steps that you can get started on to create the life you want. Just use All Possibilities 2018 as the promo code. That's All Possibilities 2018. Visit beingmypurpose.com for more information on my services. Diversity, inclusion, and I worked in city government under um, Mayor de Blasio, and there was a huge focus on equity, diversity, inclusion. What I always wondered about was 
these are kind of buzzwords. And what does it really mean to make headway in that work? Like, how do you know when you've made the kind of impact, whether it's kind of increasing understanding or engagement or openness? Walk us through what that looks like for you and, and like what your beacon is. So it's funny you say beacon because True North um, for me does represent this this point in front of you in the distance that you're traveling to. So what I say is, you know, if you if you want to go to the North Pole and you pull out a compass and you just follow the needle, you won't get to you won't get to the North Pole, right? The North Pole is True North. Um, you'll be following magnetic north, but you have to know the difference between true north and that magnetic north. And that means you need education, you need tools, you need to not necessarily follow your instinct. You know, we also we so often follow our instincts or think that our gut is right. But our instinct in, in this society, specifically as it relates to, you know, social norms or, or power structures, they typically are on the side of what's the most powerful and what's the most dominant. So my work is, you know, making visible that invisible thing that keeps us looking through the lens of an oppressor, quite frankly, whether it's us being oppressed or we're looking at someone else. Um, and that lens is so powerful. And so... When I went to Paris the first time, I the second time actually, before I went to Paris, I went to Barcelona, and I saw the church, um, the Sagrada Familia. Mm. And when I think about that church, and what I learned about that church is that the architect uh, Gaudi, he knew that he would never live to see it finished, mm. and I've used that as really the the framework for my work. I will never live to see this work finished. And the beauty in that is that the work I do and the sphere of influence that I have with participants and schools and executive directors is that people get to carry this work without me. And so the question then becomes when you ask about, you know, what the impact is, is whether it's de Blasio or it's me, or it's Obama, what systems are in place that will be there when you leave? How will we create systems that dismantle inequity and produce equity? Um, how will we have practices and protocols that are built in so that people see themselves in the design of a thing, and they see themselves represented they see their voice as valuable they don't see themselves as simply included from by someone else they see themselves as as a contribution and so for example when i think of a school if i i was at a school last week and i asked teachers to think about the curriculum and i asked them to think about who they were as students and what stories and what bodies and what histories were they taught were the most powerful. And for all the people in the room, there was a consensus that it is not people of color, that is for sure, right? That we learn our contributors to mankind 
and history and civilization. You know, any, I'm not Christian, but, you know, any picture of Jesus will look like some, you know, light-haired white man. <laughs> For that matter, God is a white man with a, gray, <laughs> a white beard and looks like Zeus, who also happens to be white. Um, so if this is the world that we grew up in, where we are, we are constantly f- fed narratives that center whiteness and, and decenter people of color, to decenter women, to decenter non-Christian folks, right? Um, that decenter um, people in the LGBT community. It's what can we do then to disrupt those narratives? So that's step one. How can we disrupt? the narratives that create our understanding of these things. And so as a teacher, I say, let's look at your curriculum. Let's look at the pictures that you're using. Mm. Let's look at the pictures that I'm using in this very presentation. Mm. I had to carefully select pictures that if I, if I am showing a picture of a scientist, what kind of, who am I showing you and what narrative am I, am I feeding into? Um, and then beyond that, beyond just representation, seeing yourself, we, we know that there are systems in place that keep in place black men in prison prison at much higher rates. We know that for the most part in New York City, if you're walking around with marijuana on you, you're probably white. But if you're arrested for it, you're probably black. So we know those systems are in place. So then we ask ourselves the question, so what does then the NYPD have to do? What kind of training is that? that would offer them a pause point, a point where they pause and ask themselves a question. Would I be doing this if this were another person? And part of what makes my work hard is that our racism and most of the isms, quite frankly, they make us very small. They make us small. They make our our, our gaze small they make who is on the other side of our gaze small um and it's so much bigger and so much more complex but the reason things like racism thrive is because we've allowed it to be such a small conversation so calling you a racist because you said a thing and you feel a thing and you must apologize for the thing doesn't solve racism you know it's it can be important but if we're not creating new systems um because at the, end of the, at the end of the day, inequity and oppression exist in systems. They get reproduced by systems. So as a consultant, as a facilitator, I prompt organizations and companies and schools to create new systems based on data, based on knowledge, based on learning, based on reflection, new systems that will disrupt existing systems of inequity. So then we have to wait. And we have to wait. We have to create systems and give them a chance to to blossom because we are undoing, in some cases, 500 years of damage, in some cases, 1,000 years of damage, depending on who we're talking about. And so, so much of – and to that end, a lot of people want tools right now. Mm-hmm. They want to know how they can fix it. And I – I could give you I could give you a hammer. I could give you a hammer and you could build a house. Or I could give you a hammer and you could bash someone's brains in. <laughs> and 
unless you've done the work to know the usefulness of this tool and to understand your place in the world and your body in the world and the history and the context that you carry with you in the world, tools won't do you any good. So we start with a conversation about who we are and what our place is in history and what our, and, and, and what our body is in the society and what that means for us. And once I establish who I am in this conversation, then I can start thinking about the potential I have and the power that I have to undo these systems. So tools come, strategies come, and there are some tried and, tried and true strategies that we see disrupt those narratives and disrupt those systems. But the foundation of my work is who are you? Who are you? And are you who you think you are? That's really fascinating. As you were kind of describing that, I was thinking back to some work experiences I had where I think in, in general, let's say like a corporate environment or really any any environment, um, I find, you know, the white the white man boss figure to be pretty commonplace. Mm-hmm. And um I worked in real estate for a while too, so very few women in the senior executive roles. And I wonder, you know, is is the fix, you know, what could the fix be? I don't think it's as simple as hiring somebody who, you know, looks like you and me. What are your thoughts on from a corporate perspective? It's interesting because when I walk into a school, my general assumption is that this school wants to create equity. It wants to create um, racial equity, gender equality, and they want me to help them understand how to do that. When I walk into a corporation or anywhere in the private sector, the conversation is, as you said, around how can we look better? Mm-hmm. How can we place bodies a body, <laughs> a <laughs> body, <for> one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe one, maybe Our two, will go up. <laughs> right? Um, in a specific role, so that we look better. How do we look good? And as I think you are getting at, that does not create equity. And quite frankly, you can put anyone in a space, and they can still perpetuate, you know, white cisgender male, you know, normative ways of being. Um, and them just being there doesn't necessarily isn't a solve for that. It's something. It's it's, a, it's certainly a value, but it doesn't necessarily undo systems of inequity. So you do see, um, people or corporations like Nike taking a risk, um, and using like Colin Kaepernick as their spokesperson now and. And the the tagline to this new campaign is, it's about sacrifice and and losing something to gain something, and it is bold. And this is you know a, a multi million dollar, possibly billion dollar corporation. And it's old, um, and it's taking a risk by by taking a stand. There are people who are tearing off the Nike symbol, off their socks <laughs> and basketball shorts in protest of this campaign, uh, because of someone who has decided to take a knee to call attention to police brutality and, and, and inequity. And so when we see companies like Nike do this, we do see there is going to be a loss because 
that's how power is. That's how equity is, right? There has to be a loss in one area for there to be a gain in another. So the question is, how do you convince a corporation to take that risk? And I think that it comes down to, I could say a moral obligation, right? But that's not going to sell <laughs> often because that's not even on the table for a lot of companies. But I do think there's something to be said about we see examples of corporations who are really doing a lot more than others for representation, for showing that the people who have power at the top are not white, straight men. Um, and they're, we're seeing them be extremely successful and praised. And it's amazing because we can see a, a hundred men in Hollywood being being taken down day by day and yet still the same practices persist. So a lot of it is you're just going to go down kicking and screaming until something new takes your place. In which case I don't think that's what you want to be as a company. I don't want to I don't I don't think companies or corporations want to see themselves be out with the old. So if being part of the future means rethinking what power and and access and money look like in the future where our, our, our world, our country is drastically changing as it relates to the demographic. Um, I think we're, you know, 40% people of color now in the school system. The public school si- system is 51% people of color. Mm-hmm. So for the first time in history, I think white people are the, the, the minority. minority of public school children. Mm-hmm. And they will be consumers. And we see things like Black Panther and... There's just there's there's no indication that restructuring what this all looks like will come at a loss um, on a on a on a grand scale. It will come at a loss for some people, right? But the, the, unfortunately, loss is part of the game. And quite frankly, if a corporation says, "Listen, all we need to do is hire a black lesbian woman," <laughs> we need to <laughs> literally have heard this person isn't diverse enough as a, a person can be diverse. If that's what they want, I will decline. I will decline. And it's really as simple as that. There, There is – I, of course, want to make money and I, of course, want to have a life that I can live comfortably you know, with my family. But my my integrity and my, my dignity, I have to practice what I preach. And I think I've, I'm learning as I do this work more and more that when I'm in the room, whether it's at a board meeting or – or at an all-staff retreat, there are certain people in the room I am there to impact. The people who I know will move a few steps forward. And there are people in the room who are so far back that they will get very little out of me being there. And I have to make my peace with that. Um, because, so far back meaning? So far back meaning they their their world is so shaped by the the power structures that are in place whether it's because they benefit from those structures or they've just bought into that Kool-Aid um they're not ready to move forward and that's okay that's okay maybe another day maybe this is a seed that's planted but I'm not looking to take a corporation that's from the stone age and make it progressive and new I'm taking corporations and schools who are saying that they're ready they don't know how to move forward. They don't know how to create more equitable systems or to or more inclusive systems, but they know that they want to and they know that they're thinking about it. 
and those are the the organizations that I want to work with. Um, and I get to choose because this is my life, right? <laughs> I get <laughs> I get to choose who I want to work with, and I don't have to. I learned this the hard way when I first started consulting. I would just say yes to everything, mm-hmm. and I was back to my nightmare twenty seven year old working all the time, all day, all night self. And I thought this is the exact opposite of what I wanted. Um, and part of it is a simple answer. I can just say no. Mm-hmm. I can say no and and value my home life and my marriage and my artistic endeavors um, and just say no. And that's okay. And it's easy to say no when I'm not aligned with the values of an organization. Part of Part of part of what I've learned, what I tell people as a consultant is that I don't have to go on interviews anymore. I haven't done an interview in years. Now I just have meetings and my meetings are here, are my values. What are yours? Do we support each other? If not, then we part ways and that's it. And if we do, then maybe we work together, but I don't need to go in front of a person and say, please need me. Please want me. Um, and that's just like, I woke up and made that decision when I, when I said I'm a consultant I just woke up and said okay no more interviews now they're just meetings and it's just language it's just language and it's giving word to things and words have so much power but you know we're not we're not really taught to enter interviews and interviewing the people interviewing us right we're not mm-hmm. we're not taught to value our values and say M is this company is this organization aligned with my values not how can I convince them that, them that I'm aligned with theirs so I've learned that and it's, it's become much easier and I'm excited about it. Hmm. That's a, definitely, I can see the equity there and it's kind of you taking back the power that you could have given away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's also, it's naming your world, right? Mm-hmm. Part of equity and power is the ability to name your world and to name things. And so much of this world for those who are oppressed has been named for them. Their bodies have been named for them. So, for me in this work as an individual and as hopefully a model for what it can look like, name your world. No more interviews for me. Nope. Now I'm just going to go to a meeting. <laughs> um, and, you know, even down to things like in my sessions, you know, typical, typical sessions or professional developments or meetings, you have an agenda or objectives. And I'm pretty much done with that. I just say together we will, a list of things we're going to do together because I'm a part of that. I'm a part of what we're going to do together. And that's been exciting for me as well to really just name my world, name, rename language, recreate language that feels more equitable, that feels more inclusive, that feels like it honors this idea that we are in this together and that there is nothing in the world that we can undo if we're not undoing it together. There's nothing in this world that we can do without being together. Um, we can try, and we have tried, but we see the fault in that. And so, so much of what I want to engender in others is this value of, I need you. Not I include you. I need you. We need each other. We have to do this together. And we see that happening. We see that we have to do this together. And it's a, it's not new, but somehow it, it evades us. Can you lay a path for where people who are listening can help shape equity in wherever they're working, whether it's in a nonprofit or a school or a corporation? Yeah, I think that, like I said, you have to want to begin that work, right? So what I will never do is work as a convincer 
someone just, I'll, I'll never go in and try to convince you to do that work. You have to want to do it before I get there. And so once I'm there, uh, the three things I think about are, are first, confronting race, power, and privilege. Right? How do we confront it? Name this as a thing. Because so much of what keeps inequity and oppression alive is the fact that there is no name to it. Um, and we are, we, are, we are complicit in some of the protocols that keep us from talking about it. Like being polite not talking about quote-unquote politics um, or keeping emotions out of the workplace. But if you have highly charged conversations and, and, and topics coming up, then how can you not have emotions wherever you are? Um, for me, when people talk about Black Lives Matter as politics, as a black man, that's not politics you're talking about. You're talking about my life. So how do we confront that conversation? Like just confront it and not, and not avert our eyes. Um, and then B... As I mentioned, how do we disrupt the narratives that are harmful about people of color or about, about women, about LGBTQ people? How do we say, see when you say that thing, what it sounds like you're saying is that that person is less. When you call him articulate, it sounds like you're saying you're surprised that he speaks so well. When you tell her to smile, it sounds like you're saying somehow that she has to look a certain way for you to feel comfortable, right? How do we acknowledge the stories and the narratives that come up in conversation, in, in the materials we publish, in the images we publish, in the curriculums we design? How do we disrupt those narratives? And finally, what does it look like for us actually to be a model for institutional and social change? What if people look to us and said, look what they're doing. Look at how they're doing it, right? How do I replicate that? What do I need to do? What do I need to learn? How do I need to think to actually position myself as a model for what it looks like to be a school, be a network, be a district, be a corporation, be a company, an organization who is creating quantifiable change within their organization, their stakeholders, and their communities, so those are the three things, you know, and there it's, it's a bit it's a bit macro when we can get to, you know, we talk about strategies more as we dive in. But a lot of it is the answers are already there. But if we're not having the conversations, then we'll never find them. Right. So having those conversations led by, you know, those things, those three things down that path, we just find so we find so much and there's so much meaningful um, experience and spaces that are are quelled because we're not having the conversation. So using that as, you know, I'd, I'd say pillars, as pillars of what's possible, we find uh, a great deal of things that just can really create change in our spheres of influence. Beautiful. It definitely takes a lot of courage to have those conversations and it, and I can understand the importance of having a facilitator to create that safe space so that people, um, you know, those conversations could go yeah. in a really <laughs> in one direction that yes. may not be so constructive and it, mm -hmm. and it could uh, go the other way, which is that it creates a lot of understanding and openness that maybe didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. And that balance of courage and safety is important to acknowledge because I think people often confuse a lack of safety with discomfort and 
part of my job is to help you acknowledge what's not comfortable versus what feels unsafe. So we do talk about these brave or courageous spaces in this work. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone is, the assumptions, everyone's physically safe. From there, we get into more just the area of discomfort and how do we feel comfortable. And this work isn't comfortable, um, especially for me. <laughs> but it's good work and I, I'm, I'm passionate about it. Very quickly, my one last question, kind of going back to vision. It's very um, it's very hard for me to find people who are of the same age who have visual impairments. And and so I feel kind of isolated from a community who are who is generally older who have, you know, eye issues. Um how do you see voice equity inclusion as it pertains to sightedness and maybe like very specifically for partial sighted like we blend in no one no one may know that we have a lot of these underlying issues or or things that we deal with so i'm curious to know how you've thought about it or how you know, how it kind of interacts with your emotions. In terms of my work, I talk a lot about responsiveness. And in that conversation, what I prompt people to do, and I prompt myself to do this as an individual in the world and with with a certain amount of power, is ask people what they need. Ask people what they need and bypass the part of your brain that makes immediate assumptions and interpretations and evaluations and ask people what they need because they're people. And because I work in systems and I work in, 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 you know, institutions, um, how do we create systems to give people the opportunity to tell you who they are and what they need and what they don't need? And, Let's not just fast forward to here are the rules, here's the guidebook, here's the systems. Uh, how can we actually take a moment and pause, slow down our cognitive processes that have us inter- interpret and evaluate, and just ask people what they need to be successful? And that's what equity is, asking people, giving people what they need to be successful and creating opportunities for them to be successful um, based on who they are and their story and their history and, and their humanity. And so at the end of the day, my work is human-centered work. It's about human beings. It isn't about anything else other than human beings and creating a world and spaces for those people, each of them, to thrive. How can people get in touch with you and learn more about your work? So my company is True North EDI, uh, the E for equity, D for diversity, I for interdependence. Um, so our website is www.truenorthedi.com and you can reach me at info at truenorthedi.com. Thank you so much for being here, for, for sharing your journey, um, and really for the work you're doing. I mean, I, I really like how you say, similar to to Gaudi, just you are creating something that you may not be here to continue 
to see how it evolves. And I think that's a great um, analogy for the kind of work that I think all of us could do. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Julie. I really appreciate it. Thanks. And for you, think about this um, Gaudi analogy as well. What are you creating and what are you putting in place? What are you contributing to that you won't be able to see in your lifetime? I'm Julie Chan, and until next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and on our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.